0: All right, if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I'd like for us to walk away with this morning. God will deliver his people out of judgment through the shepherd from Bethlehem who will be our peace through his and our suffering. Let me say that again. God will deliver his people out of judgment through the shepherd from Bethlehem, who will be our peace through his and our suffering. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Micah chapter five. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord." In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance. On the nations that did not obey. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, do you ever judge someone based on the circumstances from which they come? Do you ever look down on them because maybe they they grew up in a trailer park? Watch it now. Watch it. Do you ever think somebody's not as competent because they didn't go to a certain school or didn't get a certain degree or or came from a particular family or a particular circumstance? Now, if if we're honest, all of us, in some form or fashion, sometimes allow the circumstances from which someone comes to dictate how we view them, how we trust them. Well, the biblical pattern is, and this would be important for us to learn, It is that God's ways are not our ways, and the kind of people he chooses are not the kind of people we would choose, and what he calls success, we would not call success, and so there's an upside-down nature to the kingdom that is very important for us to maintain and to wrestle with, right? Notice when uh, Israel wanted a king, which, by the way, was not their idea. Do remember that in Genesis 49, God said there would be a king who would come from Judah, interestingly. And they, when they rose up and said they wanted a king, remember what specifically they said. We want a king like all the surrounding nations, which if you know anything about the surrounding nations at that time, there weren't any kings, there were only tyrants who lorded it heavily over the people. And so God, through Samuel, said, okay. If that's what you want, I'll give it to you, and here's how it can work. Be obedient. Be faithful. If you do that, if your king does that, all will go well. Is that how it went? No. And Saul proved to be, though he was beautiful to behold, and he was, if you remember, he was a man of action. What happened when Samuel was slow to show up? He prophesied, you remember, in sin. But he was a man of action. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of guy we like. That's the kind of woman we like. Somebody who takes the bull by the horns, right? And look what it cost them. And so they begin to look for another leader, and they said, well, he's got to come from the root of Jesse, right? Yeah, okay. So they go to Jesse, and you remember he brings out all his good-looking boys that are strong. And he's like, hey, which one of them? And Samuel goes, uh, "Somebody right? This, somebody's missing. Who's missing? Oh, you're talking about the little ruddy dude for whom the armor doesn't even fit? Oh, fine, bring him out. And it was David, if you remember. And so inherent within the Davidic covenant in the line of David is this concept that God chooses leaders that we don't, that, that according to things that we don't measure. And if you were to go through and pay attention to all of the good kings which there ain't many, almost all of them are childlike or broken in some way or different. Folks we wouldn't choose. And all the bad kings are people of action, people of war, people who don't take nothing from nobody, including their own families, including God. And so what we're gonna see here is yet again the biblical pattern that the shepherd who will come from Bethlehem is nothing like what we would choose. And he is judged because he's not a king with a sword in his fist. No, instead, he's a patient shepherd who tenderly but firmly loves, leads, and guides his people. So as we step into this text, it's important for us to remember this is part of the summary of Micah's 30 to 50 years of ministry. And it is a coherent whole, and the scene is a courtroom-type scene. If you remember what we heard from last week, he told them, hey, good days are coming. All things will one day be made new. However, you will go into exile, and the only place I'm gonna redeem you from is Babylon. All of your prosperity kept you from me, kept you from redemption, so I'm sending you into exile to redeem you. Remember, one of the great patterns in Scripture is judgment precedes redemption. Judgment serves the purpose of redemption be important for the church to learn that, remember that, and live that out. And so you remember the people responded. They cried out. They said, this can't be right. And he told them, it's going to be okay. I'm going to redeem you, but I'm sending you out into exile. Take heart. I will take care of judgment on those who have risen up against you. So go. Now, What's important about this chapter in order for us to understand is the people speak some and Micah speaks some, or the Lord through Micah. What we have to recognize is when the people are speaking, and we are clued in that they are speaking because it'll be in the first person plural, we, us. And then when Micah speaks, it'll be direct to them, you. That's going to be important. All right, let's step into the text and see what we can learn from Micah chapter 5. The people respond. Now, muster your troops, O daughters of troops. Let me pause right here. We couldn't talk about it last week because it would, it, would, it would have stolen the thunder for this week. If you remember from chapter four, there was a particular way in which God referred to the people. He called them the daughter of Zion. Why would he call them the daughter of Zion? Well, he's saying, "You are the daughter of me. You are my people." How do the people refer to themselves here? Are they the daughter of Zion? To whom are they the daughter? Troops. Huh. That's an interesting shift, don't you think? Now, how are they identifying themselves? What are they identifying themselves with? War. The instruments of war in an earthly fashion. They're saying, hey, listen, God said we're going into exile. Fine. Great. But not without a fight. We will not go easy. So muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So they have essentially said, I don't care what God said. We will fight to try to undo what God is saying. I don't care that he said we're going into exile. We are going to do everything we can to go against what God has said. Does that sound familiar at all? Does that sound familiar in our own hearts with the things that the Lord says and the fact that he says, listen, part of union with Christ is suffering? Yeah, 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 yeah. I hear you. Uh, I, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna go with that. I'm gonna go with this other control. I, I want life hacks. I want control of my life. I wanna be able to, to say that no suffering could befall me. Thank you very much, oh Lord, my God. And so this is the church militant in an earthly fashion. They will take up arms for themselves instead of receiving what the Lord had deemed necessary for their redemption. Do you see the folly here? So then the Lord speaks through Micah. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth For me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Let's pause here for a second. Bethlehem was a very small town. In fact, he's saying it wasn't even big enough to be considered in the census to be even part of Judah, which is interestingly because that's Genesis 49. That's where the king will come from, right? That's the original prophecy. And so Bethlehem is part of Judah, And that's part of the Davidic lineage, right? And so this is a ruler who will come and notice how he is described from of old. What does that mean? Well, this has been part of God's plan from the beginning, right? This was, Jesus was going to come from Judah and be the king who would reign rightly over his people, not tyrannically, but as a true loving shepherd, and though they would judge the fact that he was coming from... Who is this guy? Where is he coming from? Notice that even his affiliation with Nazareth was questioned, if you remember. Remember, Philip said, what good can come from Nazareth? And you remember even when Jesus spoke and the part of the Pharisees deal was like, hey, we know his mom and dad, Joseph and Mary. Like, what? who is he to try to speak up? This, he don't sound like royalty. This isn't royalty. He's not a king. Why would we receive him? Why? Because they were looking for a king with a sword in his fist. They were looking for another Saul, someone in the lineage of Saul, which is crazy. But that's what they were looking for. And this language of ancient days, Daniel picks up in Daniel chapter 7 when he refers to the shepherd who is coming as the Ancient of Days. John 1 seems to hint at this when he says that the word was with God, and the word was with God from the beginning, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? And so all throughout, there's these these passages that connect to this idea, to this, this promise that the shepherd would come from Bethlehem, that he was determined from of old. This isn't a new concept. Our folly didn't cause God to change his mind. He has always firmly loved us, and that is good news to us, which is why he says, this is a leader who shall come forth for me, the Lord God, instead of you who want someone who is going to destroy people instead of call them into being family members. He goes on. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Let me pause here. Just because there's a shepherd coming from Bethlehem, yet again, the prophet reminds him: You will go into exile. If you fight, it will be more costly. If you are faithful, it will go different. And so he's letting them know you're not getting out of this. And he gives this prophecy which shows up in Revelation chapter 12, if you remember, when it talks about the woman who is pregnant who flees into the wilderness for a time until she can give birth. And if you remember, Satan wanted to destroy the child, but when he couldn't, he turned and poured out his fury on the people of God. And so this is one of the reasons why you hear us say the book of Revelation, you can't understand it if you don't know the Old Testament from which it all comes. And so this promise is uttered here. You are going to have to wait. Redemption takes time. God is patient and long-suffering. We are not left to our own devices, are we? The amount of time that the Lord takes to redeem and do what he does drives us crazy. The journeys that he takes people on, and again, that's why I think it was so important for us to hear from chapter four that God frequently takes all of the distractions that we have away, all of the, and, and this is the thing that troubles me that we don't see prosperity as the dangerous thing that it can be. Now, it's not, I'm not saying prosperity is bad. So, did you, everybody hear me on that? Right? Prosperity is not bad, prosperity is dangerous when it robs us of wanting to glorify God or it becomes our God, which is what had happened to the people of Israel, right? And so the only way he could redeem them, and you may say, whoa, 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 did you just limit God? No, I didn't. The only way he was gonna be able to redeem them because he loved them was to send them into exile, right? That's a repeating pattern all throughout redemptive history. For some of us, it's been true. For some of our children, it's true. For some of our family members, it's true. For some of our friends, it's true. Right? So we need to learn to trust that the Lord is always at work because of his sovereignty, his omniscience, his omnipotence, and just his flat goodness. And exile, for some of you, when you notice somebody going into exile, take heart. Have hope. The Lord can work sometimes better on someone's heart in exile than he can when they think there's something they're not, right? Or they have all these things keeping them from being able to see him for what he really is. And so he takes his time. There's a fullness of time that has to occur, not just in redemptive history but in the lives of each and every one of his sons and daughters. And you may say, well, why is this story harder than that story? I don't know. I don't know the thoughts of God, but what I do know is I'm thankful that he's willing to work within any construct under any circumstances to redeem anybody that he can. And amen. And so he makes it clear here that there will be a shepherd who will come and the people will return. In order to return, what does that mean you have to do? You've got to leave. You've got to go. You've got to get scattered. And do remember that throughout uh, the, the Bible, there is a pattern that repeats. Where does judgment begin? In the house of the Lord. What, now, Cameron, that's an Old Testament concept, right? Is that in the New Testament somewhere? Biblical scholars? Yes, 1 Peter 4. He again makes it clear, judgment begins in the house of the Lord always. Why? Well, because we ought to know better. Why do we expect the world to recognize its sinfulness? How is the world supposed to understand that they are doing something against the glory of God when they have no earthly idea what the glory of God is, what sin is? You may say, come on now, folks should know how to behave. That's what my grandmother used to say. And I don't disagree with you, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? But I know my own heart. And apart from Jesus, no, we don't. Sometimes with Jesus, we barely do. Which is why judgment has to begin in the house of the Lord. But yet, too frequently, we get that twisted, don't we? We are calling for judgment of the world. Instead of recognizing, no, we, the church militant... We're not against the world. We're not contra the world. We are against the principalities and powers of darkness, which are seeking to destroy the people of the world. The war is not against flesh and blood. That's just quoting the New Testament. That's quoting Paul. You remember? The war is against principalities and powers of darkness. So what are our weapons? What does Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 6? The means of grace. Not in a fashion that is to destroy someone, but instead to help defend them from the principalities and powers of darkness. We are to care for the souls of others. We are to care for the bodies of others. We are to care for the circumstances of others. Because remember, Satan ain't looking to build a family. You're not family to him. You're food. Because he cannot... Change the image of God in you without destroying you in Toto. This we must remember. And so this shepherd will stand, verse four, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, not in his own strength. How many kings try to lead in their own strength? How many queens try to lead in their own strength? This shepherd will not. He will do so in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So everything he does will glorify and honor the Lord. Everything he does will be faithful. Everything he does will lead to the promises of God being yes and amen. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great. Not a single pastor, not a church in its singularity, not even the church itself. It is Christ who will be great. How often do we get that twisted? Are we trying to make ourselves great or our brand great or some aspect that is singular great? And yet it is the Lord who will be great and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, right? Notice what it says. He will be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Remember, this was the, God's point from the beginning. This is God's will. that God's glory would fill the earth. That was Adam and Eve's original, uh, that was their original goal. That's what they were called to do and they failed. And sending them east of Eden, was interesting because it didn't end the story, you remember? It actually expanded it. And the glory of God continued like leaven instead of like cannonballs and and machine gun fire and mortars and, and hand grenades and neutron bombs. No, it continued like leaven to permeate the world so that there would be those of the seed of the woman throughout the entire world. And that continues to be true and we're called to continue in the same way. But notice how the people hear what they just heard. Now the people are gonna speak again, picking it up uh, in, in, in verse five. B, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him not one shepherd. How many? Seven. God promised us one. No, no, no. We're gonna raise seven. Maybe even eight princes. See, God, he, he deals an economy of scarcity, doesn't he? He didn't give near enough. Weight? No. We ain't fixing the wait. We'll raise them up right now. And notice what they're going to do. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, with the instruments of war, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our land borders see what they got wrong see they heard there was a shepherd coming at some point in time but wait a minute the wolf is at the door what good does it do us for some shepherd to show up like later in the story after we've gone into exile like that's that's fine lord we'll take part of what you just said and we'll fashion it for ourselves in our own image We don't need just one shepherd. We'll take seven and maybe even eight princes. And you let those Assyrians, those Nimrodians roll up in our city and we will swat them into the deep seats with the sword. Notice he says that the shepherd will come into our land. What has Micah been saying? Where would the shepherd encounter them? In Babylon, in exile. See how quickly they got the story wrong? Can you not hear Paul's voice to the Galatians here a little bit? How did you get deceived so quickly? It happened in the presence of hearing. It happens very quickly because of confirmation bias, because of how our brains work, because of the Dunning-Kruger effect. We have all kinds of different things working against us, causing us to hear things in the distortions we've already fashioned for ourselves. Because we want a God, a shepherd who serves us, not a God or a shepherd whom we serve. Now, notice the response of the prophet. Okay. Well, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, Like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hands shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Now here's what's interesting. This is a, a bit of uh, uh, prophetic sarcasm. It's still very true what he's saying, but he's saying it in such a way to draw them in a little closer. Now, what they probably missed was he still said, You're going to be a remnant. To be a remnant, what has to happen? You got to leave. But he says some things that they would have been like, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to be like the dew among the nations. Ooh, and that lion part. We can tear and none deliver? Man, now you're talking. And our enemies, our adversaries, they, they can't defeat us. They will be cut off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We with you? Okay. Okay, now you're talking some stuff we want to hear. That other mess about the shepherd that will come in time, and, and, and we're gonna be taken into exile, and you gotta save us in, all right, keep all that. Now now we got something. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses. Wait, what? And I'm gonna take your chariots. Hold on a second now, man. That's our main weapons of war, doc. What are you talking about? How are we going to be lions without chariots and horses? And I'm going to cut off your cities from off your land. I'm going to throw down all your strongholds. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not lion talk no more. Oh, but it is. Lion of Judah talk. See, the Lord is telling them, you are going to fulfill the purpose for which I have chosen you. Yes, you are going to be among the people. And you're going to be a blessing to them. That's what that whole dew conversation is. Anytime you see dew and rain, that is blessing from the Lord himself. That should signal to you that the Lord is blessing people. And then the lion talk, well, that was a a bit of sarcastic play on words, meaning, no, you will actually uh, be able to overcome your captors but spiritually, not physically. Because I'm going to take every one of your instruments of protection and war from you. And you're going to have to do this in faithfulness. It is the only way that you can defeat the principalities and powers of darkness because we don't match up as Christians. We can't sink as low as they can. We shouldn't be able to. As Christians, we can't be as cruel as they can. At least we shouldn't be able to. As Christians, we can't talk like they talk. At least we shouldn't be able to. And so here the Lord is saying, no, you're going to go. And you're going to make the family bigger. And you're going to be a blessing. But it's without all the stuff that you thought you had. And he goes on, because now he's going to point out even some of the stuff that they were keeping on the sly that was, had nothing to do with God. This is all the really idolatrous stuff. And I will cut off your sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down to them no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy Your cities. So here God is making very clear. The judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And they had fallen into the trap of trusting the work of their own hands. You need to hear that warning. Many of us trust the work of our own hands. Many of us trust the thoughts of our own minds. Many of us trust the intelligence that the Lord has gifted us with but choose to use for our purposes instead of his. We need to recognize that this has not changed. That the Lord will purify his church first as instrument of his mission. Better that we participate in that Better that we would be those who seek to be faithful and glorify him with our words and our deeds, loving both him and neighbor, seeking reconciliation and forgiveness in ways that is utterly confusing to the world. Instead of using the means that the world has, which shocks and moves no one. And for which the Lord has said, that is not my way. So all of this, and and, and, and I'm I'm disturbed at times by some of the stuff I read and watch, and even some of the language that's going on presently in the PCA. I'm disturbed by the militaristic language. I'm disturbed by by the lack of love, by the the lack of humility. I'm disturbed by the lack of just any sort of uh, confession and repentance. Repentance. And I'm, that's my own heart. And I'm disturbed by how quickly we turn to earthly means and matters to, to try to, to, to divide and, and conquer within. The fact that it doesn't bother us that some of the t- stuff we're spending our time on is taking time away from mission, that's concerning in and of itself, even if we don't quite know how to get there just yet, right? Right? The fact that we're using harsh language towards those who are sinners and don't know any better and don't know how to glorify the Lord our God because we're afraid if you go letting sinners into the church, they're going to do damage. They're going to cause our kids to think weird stuff. You don't think we're causing our kids to think weird stuff? with well, some of what we're doing? You don't think that sin is not already in here? You don't think that we don't continue to need Jesus and sanctification? Again, I go back to the first question. How are we judging people from, based on where they come from and what they've done? How are we judging folks based on what they struggle with? And so, here we see from the Lord our God that to take up the instrumentality of the world, to take up the language of the world, to take up the means of the world, does not glorify him and draws his judgment and discipline. We would do well to cry out to the Lord and ask him to help us see where we presently are trusting the things of the world. Now, some ways we're doing it as a church in its entirety and some ways we're doing it as individuals. Do remember that as individuals you are part of the church. As you go, so we all go. I am not more representative than you are. We each have our role to play. And do remember what we're unified around and what we ought to be unified around. Uh, That's pointing back to Romans and forward to Romans that we'll pick up uh, as, as we finish up this Advent series. And so we we would be wise to participate in seeking God's holiness and his righteousness for us, the church. And more important, that we would cry out and ask, how can we be on mission with you? How can we be leaven in a fallen world? How can we be patient with redemption as you are patient with redemption? How can we be dependent on you, Lord, and Christ as shepherd, instead of trying to fashion you into our image for our purposes and our sinfulness? Listen to what Bruce Waltke says about this. He says, The focal point in redemptive history is none other than the insignificant town of Bethlehem, showing that Israel's future greatness, and I would also say the church's future greatness, does not depend on a great human king. It doesn't depend on a marginal human king. It doesn't depend on a terrible human king or queen. It doesn't depend on anything human. Here's what it depends on. But it depends on divine intervention to bring greatness out of nothing. We must be a dependent people. We must be a humble We must be a people concerned for the righteousness of God. I've said it many times. I do not fault you for being angry at things. I do not fault you for being anxious about what you see going on in a fallen world. You are human after all. I don't fault you for being confused. I don't fault you for for wanting something to happen quickly to protect you and your children and your grandchildren and for some of you, great-grandchildren. That is a good desire. But you should not want that which is going to rob them of redemption. All that safety and security ain't redemptive. Not in the fallen world. And and I understand that there is all kind of mixed messages and it's hard to know what to do and what's true. This is why we must come back to that which is of old, that which is ancient of days. We must come back to the promises and the person of God. We must come back to the shepherd who is Christ who has come and is coming again. We must come back to what he said we ought to do, which you'll hear next week, which is love God, And love your neighbor. He just happens to say it to walk humbly with the Lord your God, to walk in justice, and to love mercy or kindness. Shorthand or longer hand for love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. So we want to be a people who do that because all of the other confusing stuff ain't leading us nowhere good. And it's causing us to take up the instrumentality of the world. It has been interesting to see for as hard as you, and hear me rightly, I don't mean this to land on you wrongly, but if you need to be convicted, you just need to be convicted. As hard as the last year and a half have been, one of the most disheartening things I think I've seen, just hear me, is how few people have shown up for any given prayer meeting. The main instrumentality that we have to push back against the darkness, the main instrumentality which we have to show our dependence and need and to receive from the Lord. And you may say, "Well, your prayer meetings are boring. We'll show up and make them exciting. Maybe, within reason. But you know, and I get it, Zoom on Wednesday at seven, I understand. I, I'm not so that I hit you with a wet noodle. It's fine, but, but seriously, men, we have a prayer meeting next Sunday at 9:30. Be here in person. You want to use the weapons of war? You want to be a warrior. I'll see you there. If not, okay. I know not everybody can be there, so don't, don't get all freaked out. But seriously, are we actually using, and this word matters or this phrase matters, the means of grace? And that's one of them. So what are some ways in which you struggle to be patient with the way the Lord accomplishes redemption in your life and in the lives of others? You do know he takes the long arc. You do know he's willing to take his time. 2 Peter 3, the Lord tarries not because he doesn't care but because he does. He wants the family to get bigger and bigger and how are we participating in that? Well, first we got to confess, sometimes we struggle with how long he takes. And would you prefer the lowly shepherd who slowly brings peace through his and our suffering? Notice how suffering has been, the people of God's suffering has been intertwined in redemption. Not just in the Old Testament, again, New Testaments, all throughout. If we're going to be in union with Christ, you will suffer. And I don't mean suffer Silly things, but actually suffer for the mission, suffer hurt, suffer loss, suffer directly. Or would you prefer a forceful king with a sword in his fist who judges swiftly and harshly? This is a question that every single one of us needs to answer in our own head and hearts and then deal with whether or not that answer is biblical and whether or not you need to repent And ask the Spirit to help you long for the shepherd. Because that shepherd language shows up all throughout the New Testament. In fact, our call to worship was the prophecy of Micah being used by Matthew to say, this shepherd is Jesus. Peter uses the shepherding language as well. It also shows up in Revelation 17. It says, the Lamb of God who is before the throne will shepherd his people. He will wipe away every tear and lead to the everlasting waters, which is a fulfillment of Psalm 23. Who is that lamb? Jesus who has come and is coming again. And may he be the one that we look more and more like instead of any one of the fallen dictators and tyrants of the world. So, church, would you join me in praying that the Lord would help, first and foremost, bear fruits in keeping with repentance among us. And then that we would, we would grow in becoming more patient, more long-suffering with the redemptive work of God. And that we would look more and more like the shepherd who has come to which we have been called to be like, to be Christ-like, bearing, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, loving the Lord our God, learning to love our neighbors in, in ways that are complex and not always easy. Would you join me in longing to be Part of the redemptive mission of God. So Micah 5, 1 through 15 teaches us that God will deliver his people out of judgment through the shepherd from Bethlehem who will be our peace through his and our suffering. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the shepherd who has come. And thank you that he's coming again. His work, while he has completed his earthly work, the fullness of redemptive work is not yet fulfilled. And God, would you help us, the church, be on mission with you through him? and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you help us to be a church militant with the right weapons, the means of grace from Ephesians chapter six, instead of the worldly weapons that actually are destructive to your image, destructive to your image bearers, destructive to your church, destructive to your glory. God, would you help us use language that's biblical, help us to speak redemptively, help us to think redemptively, help us to be part of, the work that you started from of old, from ancient of days. God, help us no matter what circumstance we are in to be faithful, to honor you, and to be like leaven, to actually be something good for the life of the world because we know that you will at long last put an end to sin and death and the powers of of darkness and the principalities you will put all that away someday. It's not our job to put it away. It's our job to actually love folks in a way that would help the family get bigger. That's not easy. That is, that is complex, and we are struggling. Help us, Lord, in Christ's name, amen.